Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll start reading. Start reading there in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and declare all those who through fear of death, or excuse me, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we study your word this morning, as we consider what it is that we're being told by this letter superintended by your spirit, for the sake of your church, what we're being told about your son Jesus, about how your son took humanity to himself to die in our place, to conquer Satan and sin and death. Pray that your word would be well heard by us, that your spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. If you don't know what I mean by that, every year, churches in America are asked to address and pray for our nation with regard to um, our legalization of abortion um, in all 50 states. That's been happening since Roe v. Wade in 1973. We gather to pray that we um, won't have to have a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday the next year because it will come to an end. Um, We pause as a church to pray for an end to legal abortion in our country. We desire to see our nation repent of the harm that we are doing to millions of children. We have not loved our neighbors well when we encourage young parents to commit grievous sin as a matter of law. Our country has sadly allowed and even funded in many cases the slaughter of tens of millions of children in excess of a million a year since 1973. We know that these babies are human beings. We know that. Anyone who claimed ignorance prior to the time of the ultrasound no longer claims such ignorance. We know they're human beings. We know we're lying to these young moms. And we know we're encouraging them to lie to themselves. We know that. We will still regard them, however, as as victim and encourage them to regard themselves as victims of poor circumstances. And then we will literally help them murder their way out of their poor circumstances. Friends, these are devastatingly harmful lies we're telling. Lies leading to the death of of millions. But this issue is intimately tied 
to other deep sins in our nation. For example, the sexual revolution has reached breakneck speed, and we're abandoning all manner of truth in exchange for expressing our base sexual urges. Pornography and sexual immorality run rampant among our young people, and we encourage them to have sex because we have bought the lie that they just can't, they just can't exercise self-control. We have essentially turned them into animals who can exercise no virtue, but are slaves to obey whatever base urges they have. Married couples divorce for all manner of frivolous reasons, largely to seek their own personal fulfillment, and we pretend this is good. Two men or two women commit all manner of perversity, and we call it love. Using the infamous and wholly meaningless tautology. You know what a tautology is? When you define a word with a word. Holy meaningless tautology, love is love. You just said nothing. A man fails to understand he is not a woman. And we demonize as intolerant bigots those who recognize what is patently obvious. All those in authority, particularly in our age, our police officers are increasingly being demonized as oppressors of the populace rather than being heralded as God-given agents to restrain evil for whom we ought to be deeply thankful. We've become a society where everyone is oppressed in some way. Our greatest virtue is found in being a victim. Our identity is found in identifying which victim group We belong to. This has gotten so out of control that I heard a, recently heard a young evangelical pastor argue that Moses killed the Egyptian that he killed because he had an ethnic identity wound. I'm not kidding. Moses was a Hebrew living among Egyptians, suffering from an ethnic identity wound. That's why he acted out in murder against an Egyptian. Everything is someone else's fault. Everything. Like Adam declaring, it's that woman you gave me. So we declare, it's those parents you gave me. Had I been raised better, I would have not done the things I naturally knew were wrong. What's amazing is, we admit we know the thing is wrong, and and that we did it, and then we blame it on somebody else. It's that spouse you gave me. Had she been more affectionate, I would not have committed an obviously immoral act in adultery. What an awful, inexcusable lie that is. You commit sin like that, adultery, because you are a sinner, not because your wife or your husband did the wrong thing. It's that employer you gave me. It's that teacher or coach you gave me. It's that pastor or church you gave me. It's this body you gave me. 
On and on we go, piling up the evidences of our victim statuses like a kind of fig leaf that we cover our guilt and shame and fear. All our attempts are failed attempts at solving our problems. The error behind all this is that we have exchanged the truth for a lie. We have become an essentially pagan nation. And we sow to those pagan winds, so we reap the whirlwind. We've exchanged the worship of the creator for the worship of the creature. Listen to how Paul addresses this in Romans 1. You can keep your hand there in Hebrews 2 and look at Romans 1 with me. Romans 1 and and verse 18. I think it's important for you to know that there's nothing new under the sun. That Rome was also a pagan empire. And thus, as a result of their pagan beliefs, we're running after the same sort of sin. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world because God has shown it to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. See, here is the insanity of our sin. We have given up the creator for the creature And we've become insane. We're fools. We've lost our minds. We no longer listen to the revelation of God in nature, which is clear, both in the skies above that declare his handiwork and in our hearts where the law has been written, the conscience God has given us. We no longer listen to that. Nor do we listen to the word of God so clearly given to us in Scripture And thus our sin has led us into all manner of insanity. And folks, please understand this. Sin is never really explicable as it is is insanity. By definition, you want to know why your spouse committed adultery? At the end of the day, you will never understand it because they're insane with their own sin. You won't explain it. 
So today I want to look at our text in Hebrews and answer three questions. Three questions that will hopefully clarify how the Lord sees us, how the Lord sees our problem, and what solution the Lord has provided. So today here's what I want to consider. What is man? That's the first question. What is our problem? That's the second question. What is man's problem? Second question. And third, what's the solution that the Lord has provided? What's the solution the Lord has provided? So let's look first at what is man. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, now note what Hebrews is saying here. The children, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Now, who are the children? Those are the children God has given to Jesus. Look back at verse 13, the very end of verse 13 there. The very last phrase before verse 14. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Those are the children who share in flesh and blood. Those whom Jesus is not ashamed to call brothers. Look up at verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one, and I think the best word translation there is one nature. In other words, we share human nature. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. These are the many sons that God is bringing to glory. Look up at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's the Father, in bringing many sons to glory... That's the children he's given to Jesus. Should make the founder of their salvation, that's Christ, perfect through suffering. In other words, he is referring to those when he says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he is referring to those whom Christ came to save. His bride, the church, his people. And what's he saying about us? Look at how he's talking about us. He is saying we share in flesh and blood. We share in flesh and blood. In other words, what he's saying is we're human beings. And because we're humans, the Son of God, he himself, likewise partook of the same things. Because we're human beings, and it's human beings that he's saving. Look down at verse 16. For surely it's not the angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In other words, those to whom the promise was given. Those whom the Father gave the Son. He's helping us. Not angels. He's helping humans. And because he's come to save human beings, he became a human being. Note that he was once not partaking of our humanity. He himself likewise partook of the same things. But he chose, as the eternal Son of God, to condescend and partake in our humanity. But here's a question. What's a human? It demonstrates our insanity that I even have to ask the question. What is a human? What is man? And I mean man in the gender-inclusive sense. What is man? To understand that, I want to look at um, Genesis chapter 1. And I, I want to make you aware of the fact that I actually believe that this text in verse 14 and 15... Um, is this author, probably Paul, riffing on Genesis 3.15. 
right? And so what I want to do is drop back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, and ask the question, what is man? Let's start at the very beginning, because to understand man, you have to understand our creator. Once you lose God, man is lost with him. It is not just that we abolish God from society. When we abolish him, we abolish man along with him. Look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There there was once a time when creation was not. God was, but creation was not. And God brought creation to be. He brought it into being. When he did that, he brought all of it into being. This phrase is in Hebrews a mirrorism. So it's a way of saying um, that the heavens and the earth is a way of inclusively saying he created everything that is created. All that there is created, he created. Now notice what he says. The earth was without form. Notice that first word. It was without form. It didn't have a form to it. And it was void. It It was empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And then what you end up with after this is an accounting of six days. Dealing with that being without form and being void. Without form. So what does God do? He forms it. The forming are in the first three days. Separating light from darkness. Separating the sky, the waters above from the waters below. Separating land from water, etc. Form. And then the next three days, you have the filling of the void. The shaping of the form, if you will, and then the filling of the void. Now you have sun, moon, and stars. And you have fish of the sea and birds of the air. And you have plants and animals. And then you get to the sixth day, and it's this sort of dramatic point in Genesis 1. Look down at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So at this climactic point, God stops and we get this point at which he considers what he's creating next. Before that, it's just light be, and it was. And he gave them fish, and he gave them birds. Now he stops this. Let's talk about man that we're going to create in our own image. And let's give him dominion. And he creates them, and he blesses them. The first thing you need to take away from here is first, man is a creature of the creator. Not just creatures of the creator, like all the rest of the creatures, in that sense, we're just like every other creature, creatures of the Creator. But not just, just, just like them, because we are the one creature that is called the image bearer of God. 
We bear his image. We exist to multiply and spread his glory across the whole of the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. To have dominion over all the earth, over all the creatures, and as image bearers of God, to reflect the glory of God to the whole of his creation. That's why we exist. We're also different from the animals in this way. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, particularly starting in verse 4, you get a focused in on the sixth day again, and specifically the creation of man in the sixth day. But look at verse 7 of Genesis 2. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. In that sense, we're like every other creature. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He gave us a soul and made us alive. See, we're body and soul. I want you to hear that. Man is body and soul. We are image bearers of God. We are created with a certain givenness. A certain teleology or purpose. Listen, I I think we're confused about this. Vastly in our culture. You do not just have a body. You understand that? I think we think, well, I'm really, my true self is somehow inside this body, related in some way to my soul or what have you, and then I have a body. But that is not what the Bible tells us about us. You are a body. My true self is not some person trapped inside this body, which can be discarded. I am my body. I was not designed to be separate from my body. That's why death is unnatural, because it separates my soul from my body. That's why Christ comes to resurrect us physically, because I am created to be a body and soul creature for eternity. So I ought not to despise despise the givenness of my body, the naturalness of my body. Further, as human beings, our um, value is not found in accidental characteristics. Our value is found in essential characteristics. Now, what do I mean by that? Because you're not used to thinking about that. Usually you think accident like, oops, it was an accident, right? Okay, that's, that's not how I'm using the term. What do I mean? Essential characteristics are what make a thing the thing that it is. It is what it is in its essence. What make a thing a thing that it is. So in essence, I or you are body and soul. Body and soul, that's your essence. Please understand this. The essence of humanity is body and soul. I am not, in essence, however, a 45-year-old middle-class white male. That is not my essence. I am not, in essence, tall, 
dark-haired, having two legs and two arms, and ten little fingers and ten little toes. Spite of the children's book now, that is not what defines me as a human being. If you cut off my right arm, I would still be a human. I'm going down to Radius this afternoon, and we'll be hanging out with the Bonuras part of the time we're down there. Joseph Bonura lost the bottom half of his right leg. He is not less human. That's an accidental characteristic. If you dyed my hair, I would still be human. If I lost one of my ten fingers or ten toes, I'd still be human. Things like age, skin color, how much pigmentation or melanin I have, nationality, culture, height, weight, are all accidental characteristics. And we ought to utterly reject the notion of defining people on the basis of accidental characteristics. It ought to be anathema to us. Yet this has been one of the seminal sins of our nation. We argued for and enshrined in law the inferiority of black people on the basis of an accidental characteristic. The amount of, the kind of pigmentation they have in their skin. We dehumanized black people on that basis. What's sad is we haven't learned our lesson from that. We're still dividing our people around accidental characteristics. Think of what we've done to the unborn in abortion. We're declaring them less than fully human on the basis of an accidental characteristic like age or stage of development. You don't think that'll stop at the unborn. A child in the womb is every bit as human as me. Every bit as human as me. But at a different stage of development, a different age. And folks, we're beginning to make similar judgments of the handicapped, of the terminally ill, and of the elderly. We're taking accidental characteristics and determining their value. We've, we're really determining people's value on, really as a measure of the utility, if, we, if you will. A kind of utilitarianism pervades among us. This unborn baby is not useful. It has no utility for me. This mentally disabled person is not useful. They have no utility to the society. This elderly person or terminally ill person are not useful. In fact, maybe all of those classes of people are a drag on the society in some way, and so we ought to eliminate them. We did this in the past to women, blacks, Asians, and Native Americans. We are not just valuable based upon the utility that is ascribed to us. This way of thinking is inhumane. It's ungodly. Biblically, we are all human sons of Adam. I mean that of males and females. We are image bearers of God. Whatever your accidental characteristics, your stage of development, your relative health, your skin pigmentation, your national origin, your sex, you are to be valued as a fully human person 
and your life is to be protected. Jesus came to save people of all ages, abilities, nationalities, and pigmentations. We know this because he came as a man, body and soul. When we speak of essence, we must be clear that there is not a white body and soul, nor an Asian body and soul, nor a black body and soul, nor a useful or useless body and soul. If we buy into that accounting of man, then Jesus is only a savior for Jews because he came as a Jew. But we should reject in the strongest possible terms this Darwinian account of the races and this utilitarian accounting of people. The Son of God took on a human body and soul to save humans from every tribe and tongue and nation and sex and socioeconomic status and age group. He took humanity, body and soul, to himself to save humans. Once you deny what a human is in his essence as body and soul, you have a huge problem with the incarnation of the Son of God. What's our problem then? That's what a man is in his essence. Body and soul, an image bearer of God. What's our problem? Look at Hebrews 2.14. Keep your hand in Genesis because we'll go back there. But look at Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now notice the that. Here's his purpose. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So why did Jesus become a man? Why did the eternal Son of God partake of humanity? Note the reason given here. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he became a man to die. Did you hear that? He became a man to die. To what end? To conquer Satan. He became a man to die. To what end? To deliver us from death and the fear of death. And I'm going to deal more with the fear of death next week. Our problem is clear. Satan, in this text, and death. Satan and death. But what ties Satan, on the one hand, and death on the other, together? Why bring those two concepts, Satan and death, together? One word ties them together. You want to know what it is? Sin. Satan does not have absolute power of death. You understand that? Satan is not sovereign. God numbers your days. God numbers the hairs on your head. God is sovereign over life and death. Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. So what is Satan's power over death then? Satan has power over death in that he has tempted us to sin 
and sin brings death as a judgment from God. So keep your hand in Hebrews 2 and look back at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We'll note first the command of God to Adam and Eve. Though in the accounting here, Eve is not present for this in the, in the way it's accounted for in Genesis 2. I just want to note this anyway because this is a command clearly understood to be given to Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. That's a kind of priestly service, by the way, um, that's used there, that Hebrew word, to work it and to keep it. That's to guard it. It's a sort of kingly service, to protect, to guard. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day, in the day that you eat of it you will, or you shall surely die. So man was created with a purpose, a priestly purpose, a kingly purpose, to spread the glory of God across the face of the earth, to obey the law of God, to hear the voice of his creator, believe him, and do what he says. Man, in other words, was created as an individual morally responsible person. You know that your, your, your dog might be good or bad, but not in a moral sense. You don't have rules you post for your dog to read that they violate or keep. We're morally responsible creatures, persons. Now, look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 because we're going to see our problem. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. Though we can't find anywhere where God said that. I think Maybe Eve's becoming a legalist here. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What's our problem? Sin? Rebellion, any transgression of the law of God, and the death that comes as a penalty for our sin. Satan is the one who tempted and continues to tempt us. And the wages of sin is death. We are sinners who deserve death in bondage to lifelong slavery to the fear of death. 
constantly tempted by and tormented by Satan and under God's righteous condemnation. Our problem is not, it is not a lack of temporal happiness. Our problem is not a lack of self-fulfillment. Our problem is not that others are in our way or that others are not useful to us and thus to be discarded. Our problem is not that we are being oppressed by some worldly oppressor. Listen, um, in in the last century plus, Marxism has mixed with the therapeutic movement post-Sigmund Freud. They've come together and sold us a bill of goods. What do I mean by that? Marx believed in a, in a kind of dialectic. If you're not familiar with Karl Marx, he believed in a kind of dialectic. He, he really is following Hegel there. believes in a kind of dialectic. And, and to try to make it as simple as I can, I, I'll break it down this way. The dialectic is a, a, like a struggle between two, two opposing forces, right? If you will, a thesis and an antithesis. And these two things struggle and, and they fight and they come together to a third thing, which would be called like a synthesis. And then another thesis, antithesis come together and on and on you go in this cycle, this dialectic kind of cycle. And, and that's not all of it, but I'll just make it as simple as that. Now, Karl Marx believed that the bourgeois, the wealthy, powerful, and well-connected, were oppressing the proletariat, the working man. Okay? And so you have a dialectic now, a conflict between those two groups. He believed that a conflict would ensue, and the bourgeois, the capitalist pigs, would be overthrown by the common man, the working class. The oppressed would struggle and win the fight against the oppressor, and it would lead to a kind of communist utopia where all have the same outcome. His ideas largely failed in the economic sphere. I want you to hear that. The economic sphere, they failed for a a whole lot of reasons um, that I'm not going to account for this morning, but the point is they largely failed. However, his ideology took new expression in sociocultural and psychological ideas. While Marxism was losing ground in the world of economics, it was gaining ground, sorry, in the culture war, in the war for identity. Some of that has to do with the fact that the Frankfurt School in Germany, mostly comprised of Jews, had to flee Germany to come to America under Hitler and they came here and settled at Columbia and spread this ideology all across America. But it was picked up in a myriad of ways in society and culture. Here's the bottom line. It's, it's, it's always the same. The bottom line of this movement is that your accidental characteristics place you in some larger group of oppressed folks who share those same characteristics. Your group is being oppressed by others and you must overthrow your oppressors. So let's think of the civil rights movement for a minute. The civil rights movement was absolutely right to overthrow the laws that created a kind of lower caste of people on the basis of an accidental characteristic like the color of their skin. Absolutely, clearly, in an unqualified sense, 
right in that. They should have railed against what was clear racist oppression. Sadly, though, and ironically, we as a culture swallowed the poison with the cure. While embracing that blacks are essentially human, as we should have done all along, regardless of their skin color, we carried in ideologies that still placed them in a different group than those with lighter pigmentation. We remain fully committed to differentiating whites and blacks on the basis of Darwinian notions of separate races. And you can see that these sad divisions remain, and frankly, folks, they seem to be growing at our present moment. We did the same thing with the feminist movement. Hear this. Women really were being treated and oppressed, mistreated and oppressed. They really were. That was a real thing. But while attempting to overcome our sin of oppressing them on the basis of sex, we swallowed some more poison. We bought the lie that for women to be equal, they must not in any way be different than men. Not just as to their essence, body and soul, but even as to the outcomes or implications of their accidental characteristics, like they're a woman, therefore they can bear children. And what ultimately gave men the power to oppress women? Children. Children ultimately gave men the power to oppress women, specifically childbearing. That's why abortion is necessary to the feminist movement, in its contemporary form anyway. How else can women overthrow their male oppressors? Abortion is a utilitarian move. The baby is of no utility or use to me. In fact, rather than this baby being a human being, they would argue that this baby is an agent of male oppression for women. This baby should be cut out. This ideology really became obvious in the sexual revolution. How so? Because traditional sexual morals were seen as oppressive to my freedom to do as I desire. We first bought the lie that it's natural to indulge our base animal instincts. See, that's natural, right? And thus we, we've lost what differentiates us from animals. You know, my dog does not contemplate his existence. Doesn't. He doesn't know his purpose. He doesn't think about marriage. None of it. It is actually more natural. I want you to hear this, and we have to be clear on this, folks. It is actually more natural for humans to contemplate the purpose of their lives and exercise self-control over their base impulses, expressing those instead in natural ways than it, is, than it is for them to follow their base impulses as animals do. I hear this all the time in debates, and I want to try to get at this without being crude. But I have been in debates on this issue with people telling me that, um, listen, that kind of sexual perversity occurs in nature among animals. So, of course, it occurs in man, and therefore it's okay that we participate in the same thing because animals do. 
Then they're talking about two male penguins in Australia who seem to have, to have become friends. And they've had, they put an egg from another set of penguins. They disregard that part of it for them to hatch and care for. And then they talk about these being gay penguins and they say, love is love. That's in the New York Times. We have lost our minds. These penguins aren't contemplating that kind of stuff. My dog is not contemplating its base urges when it goes over to my guest and jumps up on their leg. I hope that all my human guests are contemplating that before they come to my house. Right? We're not animals. It is natural for us to exercise self-control. If you don't believe that sexual promiscuity is unnatural, then you're not paying attention to what that sexual freedom has done to our culture and thus our communities and especially our children. Further, these sexual urges have led to the embrace of all manner of perversion and destruction. We've denied the givenness and purpose of our sexual organs. It's clearly unnatural for two men to fornicate. That is patently obvious. If two men burn with lust for one another, that is not natural. And we all know it. We should not call that sinful and dehumanizing act love. It is never love to dehumanize someone. Never. Whether that's the case in sexual morality heterosexually or in sexual morality homosexuality or excuse me, in homosexuality, it doesn't matter. It's never love to dehumanize someone, ever. And folks, the transgender moment in which we currently live clearly overthrows the givenness of our humanity. We just flat deny what's clearly before us. We pretend pretend that our true self is our real self is trapped inside our body. And, and we even talk about the cognitive dissonance to the level that is, is just beyond me. Uh, my nephew brought home a thing from Rosedale Middle School in which he was doing their sex ed curriculum. And he had a, it had a picture of a man or, well, I don't know if it defined it as a man, but some kind of person. It had a picture of a human some way. And it pointed to the head. And it said, there, there's, your, there's your gender identity. And it pointed to the heart. And it said, there's your sexual preference. And it pointed to the genitalia. And it said, there's your sex. So you can have a different sex, a different um, sexual preference, and a different gender identity. What a confusing mess. And we're teaching this to our children. It's utter nonsense. And we all know it. It demonstrates the insanity that godlessness and sin have brought to our culture. Our nation's intellectuals actually claim to be scientific materialists who only believe what we can test while simultaneously embracing gender identities as some kind of fact that militates against what is clearly observable. We deny our bodies. Think about the confusion, the insanity of sin. 
While the homosexual movement has based their whole argument on some misguided notion of being born this way and having some kind of gay gene, which has never been located, at the same time, they've teamed up with the transgender movement who has completely overthrown the notion that our bodies have any authority over us. That's insane. Seriously, folks, how can the LGBTQ movement have it both ways? I was born this way, therefore I must act this way. Wait. My internal self is telling me that my body's lied to me. I was born trapped in the wrong body. What is it? Does your body have authority over you or not? Idolatry, sin, rebellion. Those have made us blind to what is right in front of us. Here's the point I'm getting at. We have redefined the human problem as being oppressed by some worldly oppressors. And who are those worldly oppressors? Wait for it. They are largely traditional Christians who uphold the givenness of human nature and the law of God. Thus, please hear this. The real oppressor is God himself, whom we're trying to free ourselves from as a culture. We have victim statuses, and our oppressors must be overthrown. And true virtue is found in piling up the victim statuses for which you are being oppressed and overthrowing your oppressors to reach full self-actualization. And we scream at the top of our lungs, it isn't your fault that you have done dumb things or sinful things that you've done. It's because you've been victimized and oppressed by others. Most expressly, God himself. But that is not our problem from a biblical perspective. Our problem is sin and Satan and death. Our problem is rebellion against our holy God. So we are humans, body and soul, created for a purpose, who have sinned against our holy God, who are tempted and tormented by Satan, who face death as our just judgment. So what's the solution to all this? What's the solution? What's the solution to our problem? Keep your hand in Genesis 3 and also look over at Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. The solution, according to many in our culture, is to find a way to indulge your pleasure. To discard what is not useful and to coax the government into overthrowing all your oppressors. That's the solution from the world's perspective. The solution may also be to look to God or the church or some secular therapist to recognize your victim and provide you therapy and restore you to happiness. In other words, the search is, there's a search is on for some kind of utopia in the here and now, one that can be ushered in by our own efforts, but that's not the biblical solution. The biblical solution is that the Son of God partook in humanity to die and to put death to death. The biblical solution is that Jesus, our king, came to victoriously crush our enemy and to put death to death. So look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's the Son of God. He likewise partook of the same things, our humanity, that through death 
his own death, talking about the death on the cross, he might destroy the one, that's Satan, who has the power of death, that is the devil, and declare all those who through fear, or excuse me, and deliver, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus became a man. Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death on the cross. And, and folks, this language is pushing us back to Genesis 3, which is why I told you to keep your hand there. Just look briefly at Genesis 3 as God curses man for his sin. I want you to see what he says in the midst of that curse. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, who tempted man to sin, that great enemy, Satan, the father of lies, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go. That does not mean that this is when snakes lost their legs. Not the point. It's going on his belly as a defeated foe. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. To eat the dust is to have your head smashed into the ground as a defeated enemy. It's clear in Isaiah. I don't have time to turn you there, though, this morning. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. How is the serpent going to bruise the head or excuse me, the heel of this seed of the woman, because when the seed of the woman strikes the serpent on the head with his heel, his heel will also be bruised. He's going to defeat and conquer this enemy. That's what he's saying. This is what we call historically the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the mother promise, the promise from God for which, that gives birth to all other promises of the gospel. That there is a seed of the woman, a man who will come, who will crush our enemy, Satan, sin, and death. So what's the solution? The Son of God became a man through the Virgin Mary as the seed of the woman. And he kept the law in our place that we failed to. He obeyed God in everything. And he died in our place, the death we deserve. He had victory over the serpent. Listen to how Paul talks about this. Just listen. You don't have to turn there. In Colossians 2, when he talks about this victory, in Colossians chapter 2 and in, in verse 13, here's what Paul says. And you, that, that, that means not just the Colossians, but let's apply it to us. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, your unclean, unclean hearts, God made alive together with him, that's Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And now look what it says. He disarmed, that's Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The father put Satan to open shame by triumphing over Satan in Christ. That's this, this is like a war analogy where the conquering king drags the defeated foe in behind him. 
as a kind of slave who's been defeated. That's the salvation you're looking for. The oppressor you need overthrown is Satan and sin and death. Jesus did that for you. So you look to him. You trust in him. You rest on him. It's true. We need an oppressor overthrown. Satan, sin, and death. But it's also true that our Savior King came and overthrew him. And his name's Jesus. And he did it through his death on the cross. And we need to trust in him. We have this eternal life and victory now. Though we're still waiting for its full consummation. We do not yet see all that this victory means in its fullness. But Jesus is coming back and we can be assured, beloved, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that we as a people would trust in our Savior Jesus, the one who had victory at the cross, the seed of the woman whom you promised who came and conquered Satan's sin and death, who brings us forgiveness of sins, who brings us deliverance from the cruel slave master of sin and Satan and death, and who will carry us all the way home. May we trust in him and look to him and give thanks for him. May we proclaim him to a lost and dying world. May we know, Father, may we remember, may it be driven deep into our minds and seared into our hearts that this confused, godless world around us will only regain their sanity with a vision of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May you be pleased by your Spirit to remove the blindness on their eyes that Satan, the God of this world, has placed there so that they might be able to see the good news of the glory of Christ and so be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.